you will, turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 28. Uh, Acts chapter 28 will be our text this Lord's Day as we come to this final passage in our study of the book of Acts. If you have been with us uh, since the fall of 2014 when we started this study, we began with a a command and a promise that Jesus gave in Acts 1.8. He told the disciples that they would be empowered by the Holy Spirit And in that power that they would be witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And we have watched as that promise has unfolded in the book of Acts, how the gospel has now moved from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria. And in the day that we've been reading of, the remotest parts of the earth, throughout the Roman Empire. And along the way, we've read about the conversion of uh, Saul, of Paul, and how He now has taken the gospel uh, throughout Rome and now has arrived in the city of Rome. And these last chapters of Acts, we've seen Paul has done that as a prisoner. He was falsely accused there in the temple. He was arrested. Uh, He has been falsely tried a number of times and uh, has pleaded his innocence. But through that time, he's used those times of imprisonment as gospel proclamation opportunities. And now he has arrived in Rome after we looked last Lord's Day. He's been shipwrecked. He suffered through much. Uh, But now in chains, he comes to Rome. He gathers together the Jewish leaders there. And he does what he has continued to do. He, He proclaims the gospel. He reminds the people that their hope needs to rest in Christ. And so I hope today as we walk through this passage, this final passage in the book of Acts together, that that you will be reminded of that as well. uh, That ultimately our hope needs to rest in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we find that gospel uh, throughout this study in the book of Acts. And so we're going to look at Acts chapter 28, verses 17 through 31. And because we do believe this is God's word and not man's word, and we revere it as such, if you are able to, if you would stand as I read God's inspired and holy word for us. He has been using this word uh, throughout the the life of his church, and I pray he will continue to use it and bless us through it today. And this is what we find in it. Acts 28, beginning in verse 17, speaking of Paul's arrival in Rome. After three days, he called together the local leaders of the Jews. And when they had gathered, he said to them, Brothers, though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. When they had examined me, they wished to set me at liberty because there was no reason for the death penalty in my case. But because the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, though I had no charge to bring against me uh, against my nation. For this reason, therefore, I have asked to see you and speak with you, since it is because of the hope of Israel that I am wearing this chain. And they said to him, We have received no letters from Judea about you, and none of the brothers coming here has reported or spoken any evil about you. But we desire to hear from you what your views are. For with regard to this sect, we know that everywhere it is spoken against. When they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in greater numbers. From morning till evening he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. 
And some of them were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. And disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul had made one statement. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, Go to this people and say, You will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed. Least they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. He lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. If you would, pray with me. Father God, we do ask that you would speak to us through your living word. And Lord, we pray, as the prophet Isaiah warned many years ago, that, that our eyes would see, because apart from you working, they will not. That our hear, ears would hear, because uh, apart from a movement of your Spirit, they will not. Lord, we pray for the dullness of our hearts today. We pray for all the distractions in our lives that keep us from seeing your gospel. We pray, Lord, that we might see through those things and see the truth and respond to it today. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. We have great privilege and liberty as Christians today, but that has not always been the case. Our brothers and sisters in Christ have gone before us and they have suffered greatly. And even today, our brothers and sisters in the faith are suffering around the world. And, and we need to be reminded of that. At least we become so comfortable that we forget that the faith that we stand on is a faith that many have died for. Just the ability to have God's Word in English in a, in a language here that we can understand it. That is a great privilege. And you may not realize that many died that we might have that privilege. In 1519, seven Christians were brought into a, a courtyard in Coventry, England, an area that's still known as Little Park. They were there because they had taught their children how to recite the Lord's Prayer in English. And for that crime, their hands were bound, their feet were bound, they were tied with a rope around the waist to wooden stakes. They were to be martyred for teaching their children the Lord's Prayer in English. This was the charge that was read against them. Only the Latin Scriptures are considered holy. The Bible in any other language, including English, is heresy. And anyone quoting the Holy Scriptures in English is guilty of heresy. And at that reading, the wood was lit, and those seven Christians died a martyr's death. They were among many who would die during that period of great reformation that swept throughout Europe. There in England, one of the men responsible for this reformation was a man named William Tyndale. Tyndale believed that the scriptures should be translated to English so that your average person could read them and understand them and have the great privilege we have today to be able to open up our Bibles and read it. 
In his day, the Bible was available in Greek and Hebrew. It had been translated as well into Latin. Uh, The church in that day felt that the Latin was the only holy inspired version that it should not be translated into English. So when Tyndale translated it, he was immediately considered a heretic. And yet God used him greatly. His translation was widely sought after, uh, but those who received it were persecuted greatly. A prison which were filled with people who owned an English Bible, and many of them were martyred as well for their faith. In fact, the king, in order to make the point clear, often would have their English translation of the Bible chained around their neck as they were burned at the stake. Tyndale himself would be arrested and imprisoned, and after 18 months in prison, in October 1536, he too was burned at the stake. But not before he uttered this last word. Lord, open the eyes of the King of England. God would hear that prayer, and a century later, a new King of England would authorize an English translation of the Bible, humbly named after himself, the King James Version. That translation, ironically, uh, would be, for the most part, the English translation that William Tyndale had translated Uh, some one century before that. God heard the prayer of this dying man. Lord, open his eyes. As we come to this last passage in the book of Acts, we find Paul, I believe, uttering a similar prayer because he is confronted with the unbelief of many. And Paul knows because of what the prophet Isaiah had written that apart from God opening up the eyes of man, they would not see the truth of the gospel. And friends, that is equally true today. Just because you are sitting in a church, just because you are sitting while the Word of God is being preached, that does not mean you will hear a word that is said. Just because you may have a Bible open in front of you, that does not mean that you will see a word on the page because apart from the living God doing a work in your life and in my life, the Scripture says we are spiritually dead. And dead people don't hear things. Dead people don't see things. Dead people don't respond because they're dead. I would challenge you after church today to walk into the graveyard behind this building and call out to those graves and see how many people respond. If they do, I would run quickly. But but they're not going to respond because they're dead. And the Scripture says we do not come into the world as spiritually seeking people, as spiritually interested people, that we come into the world spiritually dead. The picture the Scripture actually gives us is that of Adam in the Garden of Eden. If you read that creation account, you see God creates a corpse. And there that corpse lies, dead and still, until God does what? He breathes life into Adam. And then that corpse comes to life. And the Scripture says that while you and I in this room today are very much physically alive, that spiritually we are born dead. We can't hear the truth. We can't see the truth. We can't respond to the truth apart from God doing a work in our life. And we are reminded of that from this passage today. As Paul presents the truth of the Gospel, and some will respond, but others will not. But for those who do, we're reminded of something. We're reminded of where our hope truly lies. And so today as we walk through this text, my prayer for us all is that that our eyes would be opened. That our ears would hear. 
and that our hearts would believe that the truth that we have seen throughout the book of Acts and the truth that we're reminded of in these final verses, the truth of the gospel. Beginning with that first point that I've put in your notes. That we would see the truth, point one, that Jesus Christ is our only hope. Jesus Christ is our only hope. Consider, again, the context of what's taking place here. The Apostle Paul arrived in Jerusalem with the hope that he would share the gospel with those that he grew up with, with his friends, with his family members, that he would give a report of the great work God was doing throughout the Roman Empire. Paul had already suffered greatly. Paul had been beaten. Paul, in one case we know of in the Scripture, had actually been left for dead and dragged outside of the city. And now he's come to Jerusalem and he wants to tell them the good news of the gospel. And yet, if you've been with us in our study, you remember what happens when he gets to Jerusalem. He goes there to the temple, he's falsely accused, he's arrested, and then you see mock trial after mock trial, false accusation after false accusation. In fact, people are so angered by this gospel that he's presenting that they are conspiring to kill him. And the only way he is saved is through God using a Roman leader to preserve his life, get him out of town, and now ultimately ship him off to Rome. And this has taken place over years. We read a few verses, we forget that this is happening over years. And so now Paul has been in chains over a false accusation for years. He's been shipwrecked, he's endured much, he's suffered much. He finally arrives at Rome, and guess who's not there? According to Luke's account, his accusers aren't there. There's no accusation made against him. There's no accusation that's even come before him. Paul arrives before these Jewish leaders and tells them he's been in these chains and they quickly say, well, we've not heard any charge against you. And so consider if you were in that situation for a moment. Consider if you were finally somewhere where you thought, these people are going to listen to me. I might get a fair trial now. What would you be tempted then to plead? think for most of us it would be our innocence for most of us after years of false imprisonment we would probably say it's time to take these chains off for most of us we would probably use this as an opportunity to try to clear our name but notice what paul does here in verse 20 he says the reason that he is there the reason that he's asked to see them and speak to them is because of the hope of Israel. He is saying there it's because of the hope that he has in Jesus Christ. What we see consistently in Paul's life is that in the midst of his suffering, he he sees his suffering as an opportunity to share about the gospel. The question that we might need to ask ourselves then is why why did Paul why did Paul have so much hope in Jesus? We say that Jesus is our only hope. That sounds good and well, but but why did Paul have so much hope in Jesus? So we live in a world today where this is very confusing in the church. Because there are many in churches today who will tell you to hope in Jesus in order to get something back. And so we have this, this, this whole world of a a prosperity gospel a health and wealth gospel that will say well well, if you have enough hope in jesus then god's going to bless you with material things if you have enough hope in jesus then you'll get the business deal if you have enough faith 
then you'll get the financial reward. If you will just plant your seed, many will tell you, which usually happens to be a contribution to their ministry. If you'll just plant that seed of faith financially, then, then God's just going to grow that and bless you financially. Is that why Paul was hoping in Jesus? Because he had been financially blessed? I think we can clearly say no. Uh, Paul, we see, pretty much loses everything when he responds to the gospel, his prestige, his influence, his power. We see him claiming no financial wealth at all. In fact, we see at times, Paul, in order to preach the gospel, must go work as a tent maker in order to gain money so that he can then pay for the meeting hall where he will then lecture about the gospel to those who will listen. There's no indication here that Paul's living the high life. And so Paul's hope doesn't seem to rest in some financial blessing from God. So, so what about a physical blessing? Many will tell us today, well, you're sick, you're ailing, you're suffering, you just need to have more faith. If you just have enough faith, you'll be healed. And if you're not healed, that would be an indication that you don't have enough faith. I, I would argue to you that, that the Apostle Paul had great faith. And yet, was Paul hoping in Jesus because he was blessed with physical health? Again, I would say the Scripture would say that that wasn't the reason. In fact, we read in 2 Corinthians, we don't know exactly what it is, but Paul is writing about some type of ailment, some type of thorn in his flesh, some type of ailment that he's gone before the Lord. And in faith, he's asked him many times to remove it from him. And do you remember God's response? God didn't take it away. God reminds him that his grace is sufficient, but God does not remove that from him. We also see the Apostle Paul, throughout his travels and his journeys, suffering greatly. We see him being beaten and in prison and left for dead. And so I don't think that the Apostle Paul's hope rested in some type of financial blessing or some type of health blessing. And so why did he hope in Christ? He's there in chains, still. (laughs) Why was he hoping in Jesus? Well, I think his letters give us great insight to the hope and why he had it. The one that follows the book of Acts is his letter to the Romans. He's already written it at this point to the Christians in Rome. Listen to what he wrote in Romans 8.18 about his sufferings and why he still had hope in Jesus. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Paul was hoping in Jesus and living in light of a great promise of future glory. To the extent that he was able to say that the sufferings that he was experiencing now were not worth comparing to the glory that was to come. Now think about that for a moment. Some of you are suffering. Some of you have suffered. All of us will suffer. And when we're in the midst of suffering, it does not seem brief, does it? It does not seem momentary. And Paul here says that that suffering actually isn't even worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed. How can he say that? I want you to imagine for a second 
I realize we couldn't actually probably do this, but just imagine we could. Imagine I was to take a, a rope and I was to hold a piece of rope here out in front of the church this morning and, and you were driving in the other direction with the end of that rope and this rope just went on and on and on. And imagine somehow that we could stretch a piece of rope from Bloomfield to the border with Canada. <laughs> Pretty long rope. And about halfway, somebody came along with a ballpoint pen and put a dot on it. How does that dot compare to that rope? It doesn't, does it? If you were able to step back and look at the vastness of it, you wouldn't even see that dot. That's what Paul's saying here. He's saying that our life here on earth, while right now it seems like everything, it seems like the rope, this here and now is merely a blink on the greatness of eternity. And the glory that is to be revealed. And what Paul is saying is that one day, friend, one day, all this, all this, will be a faint and distant memory. It says in the book of Revelation, God tells us that He will wipe every tear from our eyes and there will be no more mourning and there will be no more death. Praise God. And in this moment, when we experience the pain and the suffering for Paul, the imprisonment for us, loss and trial and sickness... Our hope does not come in asking God to just take it away right this moment, just bless us right this moment, just make us healthy and make us wealthy right this moment. That is short-sighted. Our hope comes in a day when these things are gone. Amen? A day when there's no more suffering. There's no more Wednesday night prayer meetings over who's sick this week, who's died this week, who's suffering this week, who's going through a tragedy this week. It's all done. And Paul is able to say that in light of that great truth, we should trust in God. And friends, that reminds us not to put our hope in the things of this world. Long before him, King David had penned these words in Psalm 20. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. They collapse and fall, but we rise and stand upright. I realize there are times in our life we feel like we are collapsing and falling. What King David is saying here is that though in light of eternity, we will stand. That it feels like in the temporary, in the moment, that there are times when the wicked are standing and the righteous are falling. But he's saying in light of eternity, no, God will reign. And we will be in His glory forever. And that's why we don't put our hope in other things. I mentioned last week, I, I am thankful for advances in medicine and hospitals and doctors and the area of the world we live in. We spent Tuesday at the Children's Hospital in Cincinnati with our daughter. We'll be back there this next Tuesday. We'll, we'll be there in April and June for surgeries. I'm, I'm thankful for that. But don't put your hope there. A good friend in Bowling Green who was a physician and I had a minor little procedure once and he came and prayed with me ahead of time. And he said, Richard, I'm going to pray with you like I pray for everybody else. I always remind them of this. That whatever I do today is temporary. <laughs> that if I'm dealing with, with life-threatening surgeries, I remind people, you, you may live through this, but you're going to die one day. Isn't that a comforting word to have from your surgeon? <laughs> yeah. But it's the truth, isn't it? 
He said, Richard, I'm reminded that everything I do is temporary. <laughs> I'm putting a patch on it. And so don't hope in that. Hope in the One who heals us eternally. We are blessed to live in a, in a day and age and a part of the world. We, we neglect this blessing that we can go and freely gather and we can, we can elect candidates and we can go through all these processes and elections for state representation in our nation, but don't put your hope there. Don't put your hope in a presidential candidate or hope in a political party. They will rise and they will fall. They're not eternal. They're for a moment. Put your hope in the truth from Scripture that God has actually elected you and I as sons and daughters. He's adopted us and brought us into His family. And that is a kingdom that is forever. It is a wise thing to, to live with little to no debt, to invest money, to, to put money away for a rainy day in retirement. We, we are wise to be good stewards. But don't put your hope in the stock market. <laughs> I'm not a financial advisor or a prophet, but I will tell you this. It will go up and it will go down. <laughs> it will probably go down when you need the money. <laughs> it's just how it works. Don't, don't put your hope in bank accounts and business deals and all these other things. Think of how much we put our hope in things that are so fleeting and fading. My goodness, I watched the news a few weeks ago and I don't remember the numbers. The, the, the lottery was up to, you know, $40 trillion or whatever and everybody's standing in line. They're buying tickets. They're just all smiling. They're excited and they're interviewing these people and they're just like, I'm just so hopeful. I just can't wait. I'm so hopeful. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to win this money. And they planned out everything they're going to do with it. Huh. Really? I'll admit, I stood in line at a gas station that day. I spent $2 on a Coke Zero. I enjoyed it for a moment. <laughs> I wanted to say, you know, at least I got something for my $2. We are fickle people. We put our hope in so many fleeting things. And Paul reminds us here in this text, friends, and perhaps, perhaps we need this reminder. I know we need this reminder daily <laughs> to put our hope in Christ and His kingdom that is coming. And not only that, we're reminded in this text that for those of us who have this hope, we're to do something with it. We're to share about it. We're to be a witness of it. That's the second point there in your notes. Point two, we are called as witnesses to share our hope with others. And so Paul in chains, in suffering, he speaks of his hope in Christ. And so they come back and they bring others and they want to hear more about this hope. And so the Scripture tells us, verse 20, from morning till evening he expounded to them. Well, we, I've got you for like an hour this morning. He got them all day, you know. Don't worry so much when it's noon and you hadn't gotten out to the buffet yet. Paul's going into the night here. And the Scripture says he is just he's expounding. That means he's explaining. It says he is testifying. That means he's a witness. Now think about that for a moment. What, what a witness is. I, I've never been a, a witness in a trial, but I've, I've been a witness to, to an accident before. Perhaps you have. It's no secret if you know me. I, I really like Christmas and Christmas lights. It's just a little bit of the glory we get now. You know, the lights and... So, so every year I'm putting on my Christmas lights and one year 
I, I knew I had to start early, and so I'm up on a ladder, and I'm putting up these lights, and, and I could hear this car just barreling down Fairfield Hill. And so I just turned around for a second to see what was going on. And this car just comes flying down the hill. And then I see out of the corner of my eye, this truck is backing out of a driveway. And you know what's about to happen, you know. Plastic car meets metal truck. And I just, I just watched it all happen. I witnessed it. I saw it. Couldn't stop it. Couldn't jump in there doing it. I just watched it happen. Everybody was okay. Car was total, but the people were okay. And so... Time goes by and the the police come and it comes time to ask for witnesses. They they were filling out a report. They needed a witness. So they come to me. What what did you see? Tell us about what happened. That's what a witness does. Here's what I saw. Here's what's happened. Paul here is a witness to the gospel. He's saying, here's what I've seen. Here's what I've experienced. Friends, that is what we are called to do to be a witness. You don't have to be a theologian. You don't have to go to seminary. You don't have to memorize the Bible from beginning to end. What you need to be able to witness to is what has God done? And if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, God has snatched your cold, dying, dead heart on the way to hell and has saved you and rescued you. And your witness is, I was blind, but now I can see. That's your witness. And Paul here reminds us that we are all called to be a witness and yet I know for so many of us that that is a scary thing can you imagine tomorrow somebody just randomly walks up to you and says tell me the gospel what would you say uh, that would be an exciting thing but what would you say where, where would you start So many of us are fearful. We're not sure where to start and what to say. In fact, here, Luke tells us that that Paul expounded to them, testified to them. It would have been nice if he had just given us an extra paragraph or an outline there, wouldn't it? Well, Paul, what would you tell them? Paul, what do I need to tell people? You know, the Scripture, it does that. Do this if you will. Your Bible's there in front of you. Just turn over a page or two to Paul's letter to the Romans. See, Paul here is speaking to the Romans. Paul had already written a letter to the Romans. I think chances are what Paul then is testifying and explaining to them is probably what he talks to them about in the letter to the Romans. You want to know what to say to somebody as a witness? Remember this. Just remember where to start. Romans 3.23. Go to where Romans 3.23 is in your Bible. And just put a little star on that page, put a little mark there. That, that's where you can start. Because Romans 3.23 pretty much summarizes Romans 1-3 through 3 when it tells us very clearly that the wages of sin is death. Or excuse me, that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. 6.23 is the wages of sin is death. And so in Romans 3.23, Paul says real clearly, listen, we have all sinned and we fall short of God's glory. That's where we start with the gospel, by the way. We start by telling people, listen, we're all in this together. We're we're, we're all sinners. Now, generally speaking, people don't like you to call them a sinner, you know. How was your weekend? It was good. How was yours? You sinner. You know, that's usually not the way the conversation goes. What would you talk about in church? We talked about you're such a sinner. That's what we talked, you know. 
So there's, there's comfort here though. And Paul says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Not, not just those people out there, but all of us in here. We are all in the same place. We all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now again, we push back on this. Well, Pastor, I, you know, I'm not as bad as a lot of people. I mean, I've talked to some people in town who've said, I'm not as bad as half people in your church, you know. I'll say, you know what, you're probably not. People want to think that they're pretty good. They'll say that. Well, I don't know if I need to talk to this person, Pastor, because, man, I've never met a better person. He's just got a good heart. They're just such a good person. Notice here that Paul doesn't say, all are bad and fall short of the glory of God. He said, all have sinned. This is what he's saying. God's standard is righteousness and perfection. And we all have fallen short of that standard. So don't ask somebody, are you a good person? Ask them this, are you a righteous person? Are you a holy person? Anybody here this morning, apart from Christ, are are you righteous? Are you holy? Are you perfect? You never wronged anybody in your life? If you're here with your spouse, turn to them, just ask them, you know, am I perfect? Kids, you're here with your parents, just ask them. Parents, you're here with your kids, you can ask them, am I perfect? I was with somebody once and they were talking about the the birth of a child and they said, oh, it's just great, they're just so perfect. (laughs) I can't wait till you get home with that baby. They're not perfect. They, They might be beautiful. They might smell nice sometimes, but they're, they're not perfect. Scripture says that, that we've all sinned. None of us are righteous. We know, none of us meet God's holy standard. And so you then go from Romans 3.23 to Romans 6.23. You can even just write that in your Bible. If you're following along, you just write at the bottom of the page. Romans 6.23. Kind of, you might have one of those books when you were a kid. You know, you're on page 23, go to page 36. Just write that in your, your Bible. Romans 6.23. Then you go there. The, the wages of sin is death. Oh, okay. <laughs> so we've all sinned, and we've all earned a wage, and we all deserve to die. That, that's what a wage is. The wages, wages aren't negotiable here. Our, our son, Parker, he's helping preschool worship right now, but uh, Parker has been getting his, his first paychecks recently. He's got a job. He's getting a paycheck. He gets excited when that, that paycheck comes in the mail. He, he's usually in his mind, he's spent it four or five times already before it, it gets there. So, so imagine what it would be like if I were to come to him this week and I said, well, Parker, I got your paycheck here, but actually instead of paying you in dollars, uh, they're just going to pay you in smiles. So apparently you're getting 500 smiles this week. Somebody's going to smile at you 500 times. Can't buy a video game with smiles. <laughs> Can't pay car insurance with smiles. Imagine that happened to you. you. You go to get your paycheck this week. You check your direct deposit. And instead of you getting money, your employer says, well, you know what? Uh, this month, instead of giving you money, we're just going to give you hugs. You probably aren't going to feel like hugging them if they tell you that. Why? Why can't we barter the wage? Why can't we negotiate it? Because it's determined ahead of time, isn't it? I'm going to do this work for this wage, and once I've done this work, you're going to pay me. That's great when it comes to our income. That's not so great when it comes to our sin. 
Because the wage of sin is death. It is not negotiable. So we can't go before God and say, well, I know that I sinned. I mean, I was a pretty good person, but I know I, know I fell short of perfection. And so here's all the things I've done to make up for that, God. I'm going to barter with you now. Friends, a holy God doesn't barter with us. A holy God tells us very clearly in His Word that the wages of sin is death. That we, because of our sin, we deserve the wrath of God. But here's what a holy God does. Here's where you go from Romans 6.23. You can just write it down there at the bottom of that page. Romans 5.8. And you go to Romans 5.8 and you read this. But God shows His love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That, that's the hope. Christ was fully God and fully man. Perfect God, perfect man. He's the only one who met God's righteous standard. So He's the only one that could die for another person. I can't die for you. I've got to die for my own sin. I love my kids. I can't die for them. I've got to die for my own sin. If I could die for them, somebody's got to die for me. It doesn't work that way. But one who is holy and perfect and righteous and deserved no death, that they could die. And then they're fully God so they can die for all of us. And God says in His grace, that's what Christ did in His love for us. I would imagine that Paul at that point probably just unpacked for his audience all the sacrifices of the Old Testament said, now, now look how this fell short and how this fell short. You, you think about it. We talked about this Wednesday night in our Bible study. And in the Old Testament, so often what was called for was, a, was an animal, a sacrifice without blemish. I asked you today, those of you who are farmers who have livestock, do you have any that are without blemish? That are completely and totally perfect in every way? No, you, you can always find that blemish. You might not have one that's really good, but you can find that blemish. So even in the Old Testament, God's people couldn't even give the sacrifice God asked for. But then one would come who was perfect and without blemish, and God would be the one offering the sacrifice on behalf of us. And these are things, friends, that so many of us, we've heard them ad nauseum. <laughs> We're sinners. Jesus died for me. I deserve death. Jesus died in my place. Yes, Pastor, I've heard that over and over again. I got it written down in my Bible. I got it on my bumper sticker. I got the T-shirt. I'm good. <laughs> but Paul didn't stop his letter in Romans 5 or 6. He goes on to say that it's not enough just to know these things. We have to do something about them. And so he writes in Romans 10. That's where you can go next from Romans 5. Romans 10, 9 and 10. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Now we have something. Here's where he comes to action. If you confess, if you agree that He is Lord, now think about that. We're not agreeing that Jesus is just an offering or a sacrifice. We're not agreeing that Jesus is just a mediator. We're not agreeing that Jesus is just some type of get-out-of-jail-free card. But we're agreeing that He is Lord. That means we're saying Jesus now is in control of my life 
and I will submit my life to Him. Paul says, if we do that, then we are saved. And then that, that great news, a few verses later, Romans 10, 13, everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. That's the good news. You want to know the bad news? Everyone's not going to call in the name of the Lord. Some of you have heard the gospel hundreds of times and you have not called in the name of the Lord. Paul shares the gospel, I would think clearly than I or anyone else here has, and everyone does not call in the name of the Lord. In fact, the scripture tells us, verse 24, some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. Which reminded Paul of what the prophet Isaiah wrote. Go to this people, but know this. They're going to hear, but never understand. They're going to see, but not perceive. Their hearts dull and their ears can't hear. He reminds us that apart from God doing a work in our lives, friends, we're, we're dead. And we're not going to respond to the gospel. And that's why you may have had the experience of sharing and witnessing to two different people. You share the same message. I'll never forget one day, I was on campus minister at Western, I shared the same gospel presentation with two different students an hour apart. One in tears, repented, placed his faith in Christ and is walking with him still today some 20 years later. And the other looked me in the eyes and said, that is foolishness to me. Was I more persuasive with the first? Was I more articulate? No. One's eyes were opened and the other's eyes were closed. And if your eyes are closed this morning, our prayer for you is, Lord, open up their eyes. And friends, that, that places, by the way, a burden on those of us who do believe and who have surrendered to Him as Lord. That, that means we are to be witnesses to others. We're, we're to share this truth with others. Notice the last verse here, Acts 28, 31. With all boldness, he presented the gospel without hindrance. Nothing hindered Paul. And yet in our lives, friends, so many things hinder us, don't they? And so that's what I want to leave you with this morning. That question, the third point there, you know, it's what, what is it that is hindering you now from being a witness? If you have indeed confessed Christ as Lord, but like so many of us, you're not sharing, you're not a witness to others. Why is that? I think there's a number of reasons we could spend a lot of time on them. I think they, they normally just kind of boil down to fear. We're, we're, we're scared that we're going to be rejected. We're scared we're not going to know what to say. We have all these fears, and so we don't step out in faith because of those fears. But I want you to ask yourself something this morning. What would life look like if we never stepped out in fear? I mean, that's just a part of life, isn't it? Most children, when they're little, and you put them on that bike for the first time and say, okay, we're going we're gonna to take the training wheels off. Not all, maybe, but most of them are a little fearful then. You know, there might be a few who go, woohoo, yeah, let's, you know. But, but most of them, there's some fear there. Why? They're fear of all the things that are going to happen. And kids can imagine all types of things happening. 
talking to my kids a couple years ago. I don't even remember the whole context, but somehow the subject of bears came up. Well, Dad, what are you going to do to keep a bear from coming to our house and eating us? Lock the doors? I don't, you know. All these fears come to mind. And so how, how, do we just live in light of those fears and just be debilitated? No. Normally we, we, we step out in faith in the midst of fear. We learn how to ride the bike. We go outside the house even though there's bears. But when it comes to evangelism, so many times we, we don't step out in faith because of our fear. And I think here's the fundamental reason why. It's because we don't have a sense of urgency in our lives. And if there's no urgency, then we will always succumb to the fear. I have no earthly desire to run into a burning building. Ted might. He's a firefighter. rest of us probably don't. We probably don't ride by a fire and say, whoopee, I want to run in there. We probably want to stay away. Why? Because it's dangerous and we're fearful. If I ride past a burning house, my first thought is not, I'm going to run in that. But what if my child's in it? What if your child's in that house? Then we think about things differently, don't we? Then we lay our fears aside. Why? Because there's a sense of urgency. No one else is around. I'm the only hope. They're going to die. I need to get them out of there or they're going to perish. The biblical truth is this. Apart from people hearing and responding to the Gospel of Jesus Christ, they will perish in hell for eternity. And friends, there is a sense of urgency that we have to understand that God has given us the call and the responsibility to run into the burning building, to snatch out some. Just a couple weeks ago, as most of you know, Chris Coulter and I were in West Africa and we had a chance there to share with a number of people and villages. And I'll leave you with this. In one of those villages, we had spent some time with some farmers and then we went back to uh, their their compound, their little area there, and we were sitting underneath just a kind of a, a straw covering to block the sun, and we're just sitting on rocks and stumps and talking to each other, and I knew that a few of them were Christians and that others weren't Christians, and so I, I was talking about the Scripture and also sharing the Gospel because I knew there were non-believers there, and, and as I was talking, this, this old older man in the village just slowly crept up upon us and just, just stopped and stood right behind us. And I just kept sharing and talking. And when I was done and we had finished up, that the missionary turned to our interpreter, who was a believer, one of our partners there, and said to him, listen, that, that, that older man was listening so intently. I want you to go over and spend some time talking to him about the gospel. And as they talked, the missionary came to me and said, he's like, you know, I'm going to these, older village, these villages and I see some of these men sometimes. And I know they're not going to be here next time I come. And I know that this is, apart from God bringing someone else here in the middle of this remote area where there's been no gospel witness, apart from someone else coming, this is the only opportunity they will ever have to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that when we leave here, chances are, we come back, they're dead 
And they're in hell for eternity. And there's an urgency there, friends. There's an urgency. And so our friend sat there and went through the gospel. It turns out this, this older man was actually the Muslim priest from a neighboring village. Somebody had told him long ago about Islam. Nobody had ever told him about the gospel of Jesus Christ until that day. And he was so intrigued and so interested and they had this great conversation about the gospel and he was witness to about the gospel. And then he knew, he knew then what was in front of him, what he needed to respond to. Because there was a sense of urgency. Friends, I think in our life we just assume we're going to have it tomorrow and that everybody else is. But that's not true, is it? We don't know what tomorrow holds for us or anybody else. But, but we know we have this moment today. And so my prayer for you and I is that, that we would see a sense of urgency about sharing the gospel and being a witness that our prayer and our dying breath might be that of William Tyndall. Lord, would you open their eyes, that, that our eyes would be open to the gospel and the need to share it with others, that, that your eyes would be open to the gospel and that God would, would use us in our weakness for His glory, that we would live in light of that future glory that is to come, and that our hope would be that many would come there with us, and that God might use us to open up this truth to them. And so during our time of invitation today, of course, we, in, we invite you, if, if God has opened your eyes to the Gospel, we invite you to respond to that, and come and share that, that great news with us. We invite you, if God's leading you to join this church but this invitation time is for all of us. And I want to specifically ask you to do something as we sing, as we pray. To, to consider in your life right now, who, who's, who's in the house that's on fire? Who, who's not here or in any other church this morning? Or maybe they are here, but their eyes are still closed. Their ears are still closed. And to pray that God might open up their eyes to the truth of the gospel and that in His grace and goodness that He might even use you in that, that process.